This is The Big Question, where we do our best to answer questions from young disciples at Grace Presbyterian Church and to be at peace with the mysteries that we can't explain. I'm Pastor Mark, your host, and in this episode we have questions from Rosemary, Tim, Israel, Stephen, and Levi. First we'll tackle a few serious questions, then we'll look at this episode's big question, and we'll wrap things up at the end with a few fun questions. Let's start with our serious questions. First, Rosemary asks, why did Moses break the stone tablets? When Moses came down from the mountain, Rosemary, with the original stone tablets inscribed by the hand of God, he was shocked by what he found. While he had been gone, the people of Israel had melted down their jewelry and made an idol for themselves, a golden calf. They were worshiping it when he arrived. Now, the people thought they were doing something good. They considered their worship a feast to the Lord. But they'd made an image of him with their own hands and invented a way of worshiping him, probably inspired by what they learned in Egypt and all of this was forbidden by the very commands that were on those tablets. God told Moses what was happening before Moses even came down the mountain and saw it, and Moses interceded for the people. But when he witnessed the idolatry and heard their singing for himself, Moses was filled with anger, with righteous indignation, and in his anger he threw the tablets and broke them. He also ground up the idol, mixed it with water, and made the people drink it as punishment. Now, the anger of Moses wasn't always righteous. He struck the rock in the wilderness in his anger, and as a result, couldn't enter the promised land. But in this case, in Exodus 34, once the sin of the people was punished, God had Moses prepare a second set of tablets, and he wrote his commandments again and renewed his covenant with his people. And now Tim asks, where were the blind men when they were healed? The blind men Jesus healed on his way into Jerusalem at the end of Matthew 20 were just outside Jericho, which was on the way to the city. In Luke's gospel, the location is pinpointed as a roadside just as Jesus was leaving Jericho. But of course, the men didn't stay there once they'd been healed. Instead, they followed Jesus, which means they joined the crowd that he was leading into the city of Jerusalem. In Matthew 21, as Jesus entered Jerusalem, people shouted Hosanna to the son of David. They threw their cloaks into the street along with palm branches, and those blind men would have been there when it happened. Only they weren't blind men anymore. They were there to see what took place. Now it's time for the big question. Our big question this week comes from Israel. Let's give Israel a round of applause. Here's Israel's question. After the flood, did the ocean animals have to each of their species? This question takes us way back, all the way back to the book of Genesis. And answering it will help make a point that I think is important when it comes to interpreting the Bible, which is this. 
The questions we're interested in aren't always the ones the story is written to answer. And when that happens, we need to ask, what questions does the story answer? Because that's how you'll figure out what the story is meant to teach. The Great Flood takes place in Genesis 7, but it starts a little before that with the introduction of Noah in Genesis 6. Altogether, the flood narrative runs from Genesis 6, verse 9, all the way to Genesis chapter 8, around verse 19, which is actually pretty long when you consider that all of history from creation to Abraham is packed into just 11 chapters at the beginning of Genesis. In fact, this is the only event in Genesis 1 through 11 that gets more time than creation itself. Like the flood is, is like number two in terms of coverage. In the English translation, uh, creation gets just under 1,500 words. The flood narrative gets just under 1,400, and that's pretty close. And while that may seem like a lot of words, it's actually pretty brief. Uh, for comparison, last week's episode of The Big Question, which ran for about 12 minutes, took just over 1,600 words, which is longer than both. And what that means is, as huge as an event like the Great Flood was, the description in the Bible is shorter than an episode of The Big Question. And make no mistake, the Great Flood was a big event, so big that all over the world, ancient cultures handed down stories about a flood that more or less resemble each other, all of them testifying to a shared memory of a cataclysmic event. But the point is, when you describe an event this massive in just a handful of words, you have to leave out a lot of things. The stuff that's included usually tells us what the writer is trying to teach, and the stuff that's left out shows us what the writer wasn't trying to address. In the popular imagination, when we think of the Great Flood, it goes something like this. It started raining really hard and kept on raining until the water levels rose so high that even the mountains were covered. But Genesis 7 actually hints at something much more sudden and disastrous than heavy rain. It says, all the fountains of the great deep burst forth, and the windows of heaven were opened, and rain fell upon the earth 40 days and 40 nights. So yes, there's a lot of rain. But before that, the deep bursting open and the heavens open, that sounds pretty apocalyptic. And the reason I mention this is that Israel asked specifically about sea animals. And while it may seem like a no-brainer that sea animals would be fine in a flood, they already live in the water after all, this particular flood uh, had dangers that would have been astronomical and probably affected even sea creatures. However, having said that, there's no mention in the Genesis 7 account of the flood uh, for special arrangements to protect sea creatures. Uh, no aquariums for freshwater fish, no tanks for baby whales on the ark, nothing like that. The focus in the text is on the creatures of the air and the land. Now, Genesis tells us that all the land animals and birds that weren't sheltered on the ark were killed. In verse 21, it says, all the flesh died that moved on the earth, birds, livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures that swarm on the earth and all mankind. Then the next verse adds everything on the dry land and whose nostrils was the breath of life died. Now, by contrast, everyone and everything that sheltered on the ark was preserved. 
But that doesn't answer your question about sea animals, Israel. It's possible there was some accommodation for the ones that needed it on the ark. But again, no mention of that in the text. It's possible, and I would say likely, that the sea creatures were left to fend for themselves. That when the waters finally receded, there were more than just two of each left. And that's, of course, all speculation because the Bible tells us nothing specific about their situation. Let me point out something about the math here, too, really quick. You mentioned two of each, and that's how we usually remember it. But the actual instructions that God gives to Noah are a bit more specific. He says, take with you seven pairs of all clean animals, the male and his mate, and a pair of the animals that were not clean, the male and his mate, and seven pairs of the birds of the heavens also, male and female, to keep their offspring alive on the face of the earth. Since the Hebrew seems to be indicating kinds of animals, basically family groups akin to what we would call a species, then the math is a little more complicated. So depending on who you ask, uh, the ark would need to have held anywhere from 1,600 to over 6,000 individual animals. But again, of course, these are just estimates because the Bible doesn't include a master list of animals on the ark. It wasn't written to answer that question. But the Genesis account does answer the questions it wants to answer, the questions it's meant to answer. It tells us why God sent judgment on the world because of its unrighteousness, and how God saved the human race and the animal kingdom through Noah and his family in the ark. It also explains the covenant relationship that existed between God and all humanity ever since the time of Noah, not the special covenant between Abraham and his offspring that begins in Genesis 12, but the general relationship between God and humanity based on the covenant with Noah in Genesis chapter 9. Now, while it's fascinating to think about the unanswered questions, it's important not to lose sight of the answered ones. The flood teaches us that God is just and evil will be punished. But it also teaches us that God will show mercy, that he has indeed committed himself to mercy. Before we close, let's look at a few fun questions. First, Stephen wants to know, how much money is in the big question budget? Well, considering what a high-quality podcast the big question is, you're probably assuming that the budget is millions and millions of dollars. I'm sure you picture a big question skyscraper with a big question helicopter and thousands of big question researchers and producers. How else can you explain just how big the big question is. And you're probably picturing a big question orchestra too, playing the theme music in the big question arena. However, as a matter of fact, the budget for the big question is a sum total of zero dollars. And believe me, we spend every penny of that zero dollars to make this show the epic listening experience that it is. And finally, Levi wants to know, how many big questions has everybody sent in total to you? Levi, there's no way of being absolutely certain because the big question doesn't have the budget for an archivist. But if we do some basic math, we might get close to an answer. This is episode 114 of The Big Question. 
I've answered at least one big question in each of those shows. So that's a total of, let's see, 114 times one equals 114 big questions. But in a few cases, we had more than one person asking the same question. So the total number of questions would be a little higher, something like 118 or 119. That also means we've had about 230 or 240 serious questions and another 230 or 240 fun questions, which is a lot of questions. But there are still plenty more out there to ask. So keep asking the big questions, okay? That's all for now. Thanks for listening to The Big Question. Remember, if we're going to find the answers, then we have to ask the questions. Never be afraid to ask, and never be satisfied with easy answers. The truth will stand up to scrutiny. Until next time, keep asking the big questions.